Revelation chapter 7. God's plan and seal for his people. Have you ever thought, have you ever questioned, will you be faithful to the end? It's easy enough when things are going well, life is going good, to praise God and to follow Jesus. But when things become difficult, will you keep on following him? Will you walk away from your beliefs at some point? Or will you be faithful to the end? I know of a a man I was talking to many years ago who's a Jehovah's Witness. And he says he didn't know if he would be one of the people in heaven or on the earth. Or He didn't even know if he would actually go to be with God when he died. He didn't know whether after all the many things he'd be trying to do to earn and guarantee his salvation, if he would blow it just before the end and lose all the benefits of that. Or as many people do, they wonder if they'll commit a mortal sin before they die just before they die and not have it resolved. Can we lose our salvation? Or have you heard of, more recently, some musicians, some high-profile Christians who walk away from their faith and they talk about their conversion in the past, but then they talk about their deconversion as they walk away. The path that they took to actually leave Christ, leave the church. One of the things that usually happens there is they tend to listen more to the world than the word. And they tend to to take the values of the world instead of the promises of God's word. We need to stick close to God's word, be faithful to him. Then there's the question, were they really saved in the first place? Were they really God's people in the first place? Can God's people lose their faith? Is our perseverance dependent upon us and our faithfulness to God? Or his faithfulness to us? The perseverance of the saints is a doctrine that is described... uh, in many places. But it's is it the perseverance of the saints or is it the perseverance of God for the saints that we rely on ultimately? The answer is that it is God who has sealed his people, it's God who secures salvation for his people, and it's God who guarantees that his people will be with him in the end. Of course, it's worked out in our faithfulness. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But ultimately, we trust and we fall back that God will keep us right to the end. He will not let anyone go. He has sealed us. We belong to him. And that's what Revelation chapter 7 is about. At the start of Revelation chapter 7, John receives another vision. In a long series of visions which are recorded in the book of Revelation, when you see the phrase, then I saw, or equivalent in other translations, that's John basically saying, he's looking at another scene. In a film, there's a scene here, there's a scene there, or in a play, there's a 
scene one, scene two, often the, the scenery changes. Here John is seeing a new vision, there's a new scene. Yet although John receives this vision after what he saw in chapter 6, After he saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the first four seals and the cry, How long, O Lord? How long? Of the believers in the fifth seal and the despair of unbelievers and when the judgment day has come, they're about to be judged. We'll see the judgment in chapter 8. But after John has seen these first six seals, then we are given a, a pause a break before we look at the seventh seal. And it's, for a moment we're taking a different perspective. What John is looking at now is instead of looking at the detail head on at what is happening and what happens across the history of the world, he's now looking at a bird's eye view of what's happening at the start. There's a change of perspective in chapter 7. As Bale summarizes, this section stands as a kind of parenthesis, summing in brackets, explaining how God will keep believers safe during the tribulations of the church age. As a result, the believers will not be harmed spiritually when they go through the trials unleashed by the four seals of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. I would suggest that when Bale talks about the church age, he, we should think not just from the start of the New Testament church, Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming. What's actually envisaged here is the, the universal church, not just the New Testament church. I think that's what Bale uh, probably refers to the universal church of all believers through all time, right from the start of Genesis almost, the first uh, chapter 4 in Genesis, right through to the end of, of Revelation, from, from the fall to Christ's second coming, all who have trusted in Christ will not be harmed spiritually when they go through the trials unleashed by the four seals. What we see here in Revelation 7 is God taking us aside and reassuring us that God's people are safe. Their salvation is secure and that the destruction of the four riders of the apocalypse, although it hasn't yet started yet, before death and famine and war have come into human history, yet we're given this image that God has a seal on his people. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 5, the four horsemen are described as the four winds. And here too, we see the parallel. And we therefore conclude that the four winds described in Revelation 7, verse 1, refer to the four horsemen, the four sails. So before war, death and famine have wreaked havoc on human history, God has secured the salvation of all his people. This is what is described even before the fall 
before even time began, began, God planned to save his people. He had a plan of redemption where he would save people from all tribes, all nations, all languages, all cultures. And what we're seeing here is we're, we're seeing the language which, which describes the outcome after Christ comes again, but it was already planned before even the world began. As an illustration, on D-Day, the Allies landed on the beaches of France and eventually pushed through the German defences and they fought through and had victory. Um, There was joy and celebrations all over Europe. But before they landed in France, they didn't just decide, well, let's go to France and just go. They had a plan, they had a strategy. It was meticulously worked out. It took time and all the details as much as we can plan all the details, were, were put in advance. These were written down on paper. There was the blueprint for the invasion. There was the plan to rescue Europe. And so too, what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 7 is God's blueprint, God's plan to save his people, that he has a seal on his people even before Sin, death, famine, destruction and war had an impact in the world. The reason John has shown the blueprint at this stage is to assure them that even before death and, and famine could impact humanity, that God is in control. God will bring his people to be with him from all tribes and nations. The outcome of God's plan of redemption is secure. Let's read those opening verses of Revelation chapter 7. Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea, Wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. What we are given here is a visual the description of how God had planned to save and to secure his people right through all the trials that we experience on earth, that we have experienced and will experience on earth. Before even these began, God had a plan in place. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. God's seal was placed on his people before all the tribulations on this earth even began. God sealed his people. He planned the salvation of his people from eternity past. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, he has his seal on you. 
your salvation is secure. Ultimately, he will make sure that that you come through in the end. He does that as we work our salvation out, as we are faithful through trials. But our faithfulness through our trials, while we work it out in our own lives, it is empowered by his faithfulness to us. The seal here comes from the imagery of Ezekiel 9, verses 4 to 6, where the angel puts a mark on the foreheads of all who hate sin before the Lord strikes the city in judgment. As is so often the case, the key to interpreting Revelation is to know our Old Testament. A similar idea is where the Israelites are saved from the last plague in Exodus chapters 12 to 13 by putting the mark of the blood of the Lamb over the doors where they live before the angel of death goes throughout Egypt and kills the firstborn. All who had the seal over their doorposts, over their doors, were saved. God had his seal on his people. The seal here therefore represents protection, salvation, We could ask protection or salvation from what? And opinions are a wee bit mixed. Some think that the seal in Revelation is protection against physical harm. Christians will never be hurt, never suffer any harm. But Jesus teaches us that we do. We do suffer harm. We will be persecuted, even martyred. It cannot mean that Christians will be protected from physical harm. Others believe that it's protection from demons. Well, many would say that because we have the Holy Spirit within us, light and dark can't live in the same place. We cannot be demon-possessed. There's a sense in which we are already protected from demons by the work of the Spirit within us. We cannot be demon-possessed, but we can be demon-oppressed. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray for protection from evil, or that could be translated from the evil one. Our protection from the evil one is something that the Lord gives to us, but that is not necessarily what is in mind here. The other main view is that this seal is that believers will not lose their salvation. Although we suffer many trials, by God's grace and keeping, we do not lose our faith. We do do not walk away from him. All who are truly his, he will not let them go. He shall lose none of them, he says. We persevere through difficulties. We're protected against losing our faith. We will not suffer condemnation on the judgment day. Because there is already now no condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. In Revelation 9, those who have the seal of God on their foreheads are protected from harm. And this protection must be spiritual since both unbelievers and believers suffer physical harm. So if believers are protected from harm, it can't be the physical harm. It needs, we conclude, to be spiritual harm. The righteous and the unrighteous alike suffer illness and death, sadly. 
We are not exempt from that. But the righteous alone are spared from eternal death. They're protected from that. In Revelation 14, 1, they're described as those who have the name of God and of the Lamb written on their foreheads. They're described as those who have been redeemed. This seal, therefore, in the broader light of Revelation, is best understood to refer to the seal of salvation, redemption, the calling, the perseverance of God, the perseverance of God's people despite all the trials and tribulations we go through. The seal indicates ownership. That's what a seal normally indicates. God's ownership on his people. The equivalent that we often read in the New Testament, at least certainly in the letters of Paul, instead of using the imagery of a seal, Paul uses a theological term, that believers are in Christ. We belong to Christ. We are now his people. We now have his spirit within us. And all that comes from being in Christ, or using the imagery of Revelation 7, being sealed with the seal of God, is that our salvation is secure. We are adopted into God's family. We are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. That's what this seal refers to. As we'll see later, the mark of the beast on the forehead, in contrast to the mark of God, the seal of God, the mark of the beast on the forehead of unbelievers is a seal that signifies that they belong not to God. They do not follow Jesus, but they follow the ways of the devil. They are not God's people. They are not part of the body of Christ. Having the mark of the beast on somebody's forehead doesn't mean they're a Satanist. (laughs) We have to make that clear. It simply means that just as the beast, just as the devil introduced sin into the world, anybody who sins is following the ways that the devil introduced. And anybody who sins has, in a metaphorical sense, got the mark of the beast But anybody who has turned to God through faith in Christ has the seal of God, the mark of God. Don't worry. If you're a believer, you cannot have the seal of God taken away from you. And you can't have the mark of the beast given to you. You've either one or the other. Before we trust in Jesus, naturally we're sinners. Naturally, we don't have the the seal of God on us. But when we trust in Jesus, we have that seal on us. Well, maybe I should revise that to say that naturally, while we are sinners, we live as if we have the mark of the beast on us. Even though God has had his seal on us, on our lives, even though we're not living for God yet, He still has his seal on us and we will turn to him and we will be safe and secure on the last day. He will work through through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We will place our faith in him because he has sealed us from the beginning. On the judgment day, there will be two types of people. 
on the one hand, there, there will be those who have the seal of God on them. On the other hand, there will be those who have the seal of the beast. The imagery there, the wording, sounds very negative. But basically, it's a way of saying there's two types of people. There are those who love God and there's those who don't. There are those who have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus and there are those who aren't. There are those who seek God in all his holiness and there are those who have rejected God and have not followed the Lord Jesus. How can you be amongst those who have the seal of God on them on that day? Trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Simply trust on him and you will know that you have his seal on you. As you draw close to him, as he speaks and works through you as and to you, as you see the fruit of the Spirit work powerfully in you. And no one or nothing can take that away. Paul writes, So now that there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. After arguing about the plan of salvation, about how we are assured of being able to stand before God on the judgment day, that there will be no condemnation on that day. He says there is no condemnation even now, which is why there won't be even then. We are already assured. He continues, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? The things that we read of in Revelation 6, the, the four riders unleashing war, famine, death in the world, do these things mean that God doesn't love us? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us and are convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what it means to have the seal of God on our foreheads. In the Old Testament, the Jews were told to put the the word of God on their foreheads as a very visual way the high priest would do that as to to illustrate that God's word is uppermost in the minds of God's people. And having the seal of God on our foreheads is a way of describing his ownership, his protection of us. It's not a literal seal that we're going to get. We're not going to get a mark tattooed in our heads or on our arms this is visual imagery to say God has protected us God we are his as commentators point out the idea of having the name of Christ as given to those who are victorious in the previous chapters in the letters to the churches all who persevere to the end, those who are victorious. 
He will give the crown of life. Commentators point out that having the, the name of Christ as well as the seal of God on our foreheads are descriptions of simply being God's people. In Exodus 28, we also have a visual description of God's people where their names were engraved on stones like a seal. Then with great skill and care, as Moses is giving instructions as to having been released, having been freed from Egypt, God's people are now to set up a community there to have the the sacrifices and, and everything. And the, the high priest is then to, to wear this piece of clothing which has 12 stones on it. Then with great skill and care, make a chest piece to be worn for seeking a decision from God. Make it to match the ephod using finely woven linen embroidered with gold and with blue, purple and scarlet thread. Mount four rows of gemstones on it. All these stones will be set in gold filigree. Each stone will represent one of the twelve sons of Israel and the name of that tribe will be engraved on it like a seal. In this way, Aaron will carry the names of the tribes of Israel on the sacred chest piece over his heart when he goes into the holy place. This will be a continual reminder that he represents the people when he comes before God. The seal in Exodus 28 is visually represented by 12 stones, each with the names of the tribes of Israel on them. And so it should be no surprise that, well, when John is considering the, the people of God, the seal of God, his ownership for his people, the focus is who are God's people? and God's protection over them. It's not surprising then that the imagery then moves. In verse 4, we read, And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. He then goes on to list them, 12,000 from each tribe. 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes. This symbolizes the number of God's people. This is a description of God's people who are sealed. Not just a few of God's people, but the many. The list of all 12 tribes indicates that not just the tribe of Judah, which was dominant at the time of Jesus, which is where the name Jews came from, Judah, Jews, it's not just the one tribe which is dominant, but all 12 tribes, all God's people. In the same way that the Israelites represented God's people in the Old Testament, although there were some who were believers who followed God who were not born into the, the nation of Israel, both before Abraham and after him. In the vision, John moves from hearing the representation of God's people being described as from the 12 tribes who are descended from Abraham, the Old Testament people of God. He then sees, goes from hearing to seeing the same group of people who he then describes as a vast crowd too great to count. On the one hand, he hears 
the description of 144,000, 12 tribes with the imagery of Exodus 28, uh, giving the impression that this is all of God's people that are being described here. And then he looks and sees a great multitude that no one could number. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. It's significant to note that John doesn't say, oh, I saw another vision, then I saw. He doesn't describe a different group of people. He says he's talking about the seal of God on his people. He hears that they're described as 144,000. And then he sees millions. As Bale summarizes, this group is numbered as 144,000 to emphasize figuratively that this is a picture of the church in its entirety, not in part, which has been redeemed as a vision of the multitude later on in verses 9 to 17 bears out. This is the same people described in two different ways. The 144,000 is not an elite or special group of people. It's not the limit of all the, the sum total of all the people who will be saved. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there will be 144,000 in heaven and the rest will be on earth. I even have heard that some believers, some Christians believe that there will only be 144,000 people saved in total because of an over-literal translation or understanding of this passage. That's not the case. Just as a scientists are finding out that the number with more powerful telescopes, there's more stars in the sky than we'd even been aware of in the past. The promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be greater than the number of stars in the sky, greater than the number of grains of sand on the seashore. You've probably got more than 144,000 grains of sand in a bucket. And look at the whole size of the, the shore, sometimes 20 miles long. Too many to count. Millions, even more. God's seal here, therefore, is God's protection on his people. If you've entrusted your life to Jesus, if you've turned to him, if you've turned away from sin, if you've turned to him for salvation, God will protect you. God will keep you. He will enable you to persevere to the end. The perseverance of the saints does not secure our salvation. The perseverance of the saints is possible because our salvation is already secured. We persevere not in order to be saved. We persevere because we are saved. The perseverance of the saints is illustrative, descriptive that they are saved. It doesn't guarantee our salvation. So if you're persevering, you will gain that crown of life because you're God's people. If you're not persevering, 
well, you have to question whether you're God, one of God's people, if you have really turned to Jesus yet. And turn to him. Really turn to him. And you will be saved. The pattern of salvation being mainly among the Israelites in the Old Testament era, what John hears, the vision of the 144,000. In the New Testament era, it is widened out to all nations. It was already open to all nations who could join if they wanted, join God's people, just let people join the church now. But in the New Testament era, at Pentecost, the gospel started being proactively taken by God to all nations. Paul writes, this message was kept secret, this gospel message was kept secret or it was a mystery or it wasn't fully revealed yet, is what the meaning of the words meant. For centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. That's another way of describing the other nations. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. The description of the 12 tribes and then the people from every nation is yet another way of describing all those who have placed their faith in Christ. And this is emphasized even more in the question and answer session that John has. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? Where do they come from? And I said to him, sir, you're the one who knows. Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. Having your robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, we're probably very familiar with that language. To people who are not familiar with the biblical language, they might think, hold on, a bloodbath is usually something terrible where people are being killed and to be washed in the blood might mean that you've suffered an atrocity but what it means is this is biblical language for saying that the blood of the lamb in the Old Testament sacrifices was God's sacrifice for sin where his wrath was put on the lamb or what the lamb pointed to which was Christ instead of the people that God's wrath was averted from the people he did not punish them for their sin. He does not punish us for our sin, but he punishes a substitute. The lamb was killed instead of us being condemned and dying for our sin. Jesus died on the cross as the lamb of God. His death, his blood shed, is the means by which we are forgiven. Jesus is the true lamb of God, as John says in John 1, who takes away the sin of the world. And having our wa robes washed in the blood of the Lamb is symbolic language for saying that just in the same way that when you're wearing things and they become filthy, somebody, your mother might say to you if you're a child, you're filthy, go get washed. Having our robes washed is a way of saying that we become clean. 
by the blood of the Lamb. Our sins are forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. God's forgiveness is full and it's free. In Isaiah 1, he describes this in a different way. Come now, let's reason together. Let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Robes which are white symbolize sins being forgiven. All who have trusted in Jesus are protected. Their sins are forgiven. They have the seal of God on them. They will persevere to the end. The point of the vision here in Revelation 7 is to reassure John that although this is a world which knows pain and suffering and death, God's people are sealed and protected even before death starts to go through the world. This is God's perspective that we're giving an insight to. And yet, when we look at the church, from our perspective, we often see something different. We look at people who appear to have trusted in Jesus and yet fall away. And we've seen many who have not trusted in him. And we wonder... Well, Jesus said, there are weeds in amongst the wheat. As a way of teaching, there are unbelievers amongst the believers. The church, the visible church, is not the same as the universal church of all God's people who are sealed. In amongst those who are sealed, there are those who are the wheat, the tares among the wheat, the, the weeds among the wheat. They are not believers. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. God knows who is who, but sometimes we struggle to, to try and figure out, is that person really a believer or not? The important thing is not that we know. The important thing is that God knows who his people are. God knows who has turned to him and trusted in him. Sometimes we find that there's people in positions in churches that you scratch your head and think, how can they say such things if they're truly a follower of Christ? And the reality is sometimes they're not. Even ministers, even church leaders are sometimes not Christ's followers. One of the famous examples is John Wesley, who was a minister in the Church of England. He preached, he taught, he was a minister, and yet he did not know Jesus in his heart. Once when he was in another meeting and he was listening to somebody read a portion of Romans and, and then preach, he found his heart was strangely warmed. He had an experience of God change his heart and he became a believer. If John Wesley can be a, a Christian minister in full-time Christian service, preaching the gospel on Sundays, preaching God's word, and not be a follower of Jesus, not be, not be a, a follower of Jesus, then it's not surprising that there's many people in churches who are in the same position. It's not surprising, as Paul tells us in Romans 10, that 
His concern is for his nation, his people, his countrymen who they're trying to establish their own righteousness before God by their good works and their religious activities. But they have not even realized that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus, not by trying to be religious. Sometimes young pastors or new pastors go to a church and everything looks great on paper. They've had the interview, but when they actually go to take up the new position in a church, on rare occasions I've heard of pastors say, when I got there after a few months, I realized that none of the elders were believers. None of them were believers at all. Being a minister or an elder is not a reliable indication of whether somebody is a believer or not. Being active in a church isn't a reliable indication. Having great emotions at times of worship is not a reliable indication either. People can get the same at big concerts. Being delivered from demons in a deliverance ministry session is not guaranteed to, to indicate a change of heart either. Being able to do miracles while well, Moses threw down a staff and it turned into a snake. The Pharaoh's magicians were able to do something similar. The devil parades as an angel of light. There are counterfeit miracles too. We could go on. What is the sign of being a believer? Jesus said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do, you pick, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. God's seal is on his people. He knows who they are. But he helps us to have a reasonable idea of who they are, not an infallible one, by their fruit. We know them by their fruit. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. This kind of fruit, that's not an extensive list. How do we know if somebody is a true believer or not? Well, apart from the fact that ultimately it doesn't matter whether we know in the, in the long-term scheme of things, what matters is that God knows. But for practical purposes, for pastoring, for, for various reasons, it is helpful for us to know who's who or have a rough idea. And we know by their character. It's not by what they do. It's not by you know being a minister, being active. It's not activity, which is an indication of spirituality. But it is how we live. What is our character? Are we godly? It's not how much you know about the Bible. But it's how much you live the Bible in your life. That is an indication. We could also add the criteria that John uses in his first letter. 
where he writes so that the believers may know that they have eternal life. 1 John 5.17 There he describes the characteristics of Christ's followers, including that we admit when we sin, we don't try and cover it up. We confess our sin to God and receive his forgiveness based on the cross. We love God's people. We love God's word. We walk in the light. We forgive one another. James also says that true religion is helping those who are most vulnerable, loving our neighbor, protecting widows and orphans. If you're wondering if you're truly sealed with the seal of God, well, sometimes we look at our own lives and we only see sin. That's something that believers often focus on, the sin that's in our lives. We are so sensitive to it because we don't want it. And yet that sensitivity might give us the impression that all I can see is bad. I can't be a Christian. You will know them by their fruit. We will know other people by their fruit. People will know us by our fruit. People can assure us that even though we're focusing on the sin that needs to be got rid of, what they can see is the good, the work of the Holy Spirit through us that we aren't actually focusing on. How do we know? We keep looking to the cross. We keep following Jesus. We keep drawing close to him. When we fall, we get back up and return to him. Don't doubt. Just keep looking to the cross. Read your Bible. Love God. Love your neighbor. Keep looking to the cross and you won't have anything to worry about. J.C. Ryle wrote, Let all the world know that the Lord Jesus will not cast away his believing people because of shortcomings and infirmities. The husband does not put away his wife because he finds failings in her. The mother does not forsake her infant because it is weak, feeble and ignorant. And the Lord Christ does not cast off poor sinners who have committed their souls into his hands because he sees in them blemishes and imperfections. Oh no, it is his glory to pass over the faults of his people and heal their backslidings, to make much of their weak graces and to pardon their many faults. Having been sealed before the, the four winds, the four riders are unleashed onto the world, having been sealed as God's people, we are assured of salvation. We are confident that no one and nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Although we could focus a lot more on the other verses in Revelation, let's just read them, because it's based upon this assurance that on the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. They sang, Amen, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. And again, at the end of the chapter, John says, That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. 
They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The picture here is walking closely with God, with the promise and hope of eternal life, with the assurance that we will live in a place and a time where God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more sorrow any longer. And God will keep us. He will lead us to springs of life-giving water. As we go through our daily lives, as we live here and now, God is leading us. The shepherd, he will lead us to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Revelation is a picture of God's plan of salvation. His seal from before death even came into the world. And the vision of the fulfillment when Christ comes again. And his perseverance and leading and protection on his people all through this. Chapter 7 is a reassurance to John that even though there are terrible things in chapter 6, it's okay. God's people are safe. You're secure. If you've trusted in Jesus, have the assurance that he will keep you to the end and keep walking with him, keep following him, trust him, walk with him and enjoy the assurance of salvation. Be assured that as you walk faithfully with him, producing the fruit of the Spirit, you have nothing to fear because of what Christ has done on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we have fears, many fears. We wonder how we will make it through different situations. We wonder how we will make it through this life. But Lord, we are assured that you will keep us. Lord, our assurance is based not on our strength, but on the God we have who is powerful and strong. We thank you that you have sealed your people. We thank you that you have sealed each one of us who has trusted in you. And Lord, we pray that many more will trust in you and know that your seal is upon them. We pray, Lord, that many people will turn to you in faith and know your assurance and protection on them. We thank you for what is still to come. We thank you for the joy of salvation. We thank you for the joy that is ahead. And Lord, we persevere with you as our good shepherd leading us on to what is still to come. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.